With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Impact of Influence, the Murdoch family murders. This is the unfolding story of a powerful South Carolina family, the mysterious deaths they are linked to, and our quest to bring you the truth. Hello, friend. I am Matt Harris. Seton Tucker is here. We are rolling right along with your help. So thank you. Grateful that you always listen and hang with us and watch now that we're putting some vids up on the Impact of Influence YouTube channel. Look for a link in, on our Facebook page, Impact of Influence. Uh, we are dealing with Murdoch and other cases now, but still a lot of Alec Murdoch left. And last week, we did a deep dive into the financial crime sentencing that Seton, you were there and uh, played some clips for you. And uh, one of the people who was there was a friend of the pod and uh, a guy who's very involved in, he, well, he's at the Murdoch trial, the murder trial every day. And he's been on court to be with me and on his own. And he is a, a professor and an attorney in Columbia, South Carolina and represents two of the jurors involved in the jury tampering case uh, with the Becky Hill clerk of courts and the Alec Murdoch trial. We welcome Joe McCullough, who has been near this case the entire time, the whole Murdoch uh, mess. He's been on court TV a ton of times. I'm sure you'd recognize him and I've been on there with him. He also represents a couple of the jurors We'll get into that in a little bit, but uh, Joe, you and Seton were there for the sentencing, and I, I want some of your initial oversight, thoughts on the event, if you will. Well, I have lots of thoughts. I was <laughs> first, let me say, that it was uh, five hours of being held hostage, though I can't think of a better person <laughs> to be a hostage of the Murdochs. Uh, uh, other than, I mean, with Seton, that, that uh, softened the blow. It was um, long. I wasn't expecting it to be that long. <laughs> well, it was long for several reasons. And I, I suspect, I mean, this is a negotiated plea. And I think I've explained before that, that in the world of criminal law, there are three kinds of pleas. There are straight up pleas where you walk into court and, and, the judge is aware of what the maximum and minimum sentences are, and, and uh, the judge does whatever the heck he wants to do to the defendant after presentations by the prosecution and defense, straight up. There is a recommendation or a recommended plea in which the prosecution recommends a sentence that the judge can, can follow or disregard, uh, generally endorsed, but sometimes opposed by the defendant's lawyers. And then there is the kind of plea that we walked into court the other day at 10 o'clock and emerged at four o'clock or thereabouts. And that was a negotiated plea. And a negotiated plea is a unique animal that some judges in our state will not accept. They simply will say, I don't like that sentence. I think it's too light. I think it's too heavy. 
And because a negotiated plea is a plea that imposes upon the judge to either accept it and take the plea or reject it and send the parties on their way to find another judge, there was a little bit of suspense that, that Cliff Newman might regard this sentence as too light. But he didn't disappoint anybody and he went forward. But what took five hours in a negotiated plea that could have been done in 30 minutes, I think you can attribute to the fact that that the state took, by my clock, two hours of extemporaneous speaking, apparently extemporaneous, when in reality, I think that they had written their openings and closings for this trial that until a week out was to be a trial. And because they'd spent all that quality time writing down their speech, I think they just had to deliver their speech. Mm. Uh, because why waste a good written opening and closing <laughs> speech? But, but I think that that, that um, verbosity uh, infected Alec Murdoch. And when he had the chance to say something, and he obviously had a, a plan and, and had goals that, that included the most insincere uh, apologies of all time, but also allowed him to again and again and again in his one hour of speech uh, to deny again that and claim his innocence of the murders. And, and, you know, who knows, he may be, but a jury didn't believe that. But I think he was infected by the, uh, by the length of the state's presentation and felt quite, uh, uh, that, that, you know, the rest of the afternoon was equally available to him and he took a fair amount of it. So I did not know he spoke for an hour. No, he did. And at the beginning they said, oh, he's going to talk for five minutes or, and then they said, well, maybe 10. And then it was, I think, I, I think I timed it. I think it was 40 something minutes. Like, oh yeah. A lot. Well, and I think Creighton's speech was the same. This was know, an hour. This was like the same uh, one he gave at the actual sentencing right. a week ago. Correct. I mean, it, it was a redundant thing and i really think it's just a product of well it's a product of two things number one i think the speech had been written and why waste a good speech as i said but i also <laughs> think that that when you put a bunch of televisions in a courtroom and a bunch of media um you know it's his boss gets reelected. apparently his boss is running for governor i suspect this whole trial process will figure in some advertising campaigns in the next uh, election cycle. But I think that the cameras create that problem. They, they impose upon people to, to profile and high step around the courtroom in ways that they might not do. And it certainly is less than that judicial economy that we all strive to achieve in these presentations. But So but instead anyway, of so, being about the victims, the cameras there, everybody needs to have their time in the in the spotlight. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that's the problem is when the lights go on, uh, you're not getting a tan, you're getting public exposure. Dick didn't want the lawyers to speak, right? He, Dick was kind of uh, going for, let the, as in Dick Harputlian, was uh, asked Judge Newman just to have the victim speak, correct? Well, Matt, he did. He rose right before the state began. Uh, or, or maybe it was at the end of, and by my clock, uh, Creighton's uh, presentation to the court lasted one hour and a half. And oh, after oh, presented, that's longer than after I thought. He, after he presented the victims and their lawyers, Bland and Tinsley and uh, uh, Bamberg, um, which took another hour, 
uh, he then spoke for another 30 minutes mm. and then turned it over to Harputlian. But before the, the victims started, Dick Harputlian got up and uh, in maybe the only humorous light moment of the day, said that he objected to the, not to the victims state, uh, talking or speaking, because, of course, they're always entitled to do that. Uh, but the, uh, he objected to the redundancy of the victims and then their lawyers. And uh, he said, you know, there are some lawyers in the courtroom who are here for information, infomercial purposes <laughs> who are selling T-shirts and bobbleheads. And of course, everybody in the courtroom knew exactly who that was a reference to. And if there was any any question about who Dick was referring to, uh, I think Ronnie Richter, Eric Bland's partner, made it pretty clear when he got up to defend his law partner, weirdly, uh, about selling bobbleheads and T-shirts, which he confirmed and said, but we're giving it all to charity. And uh, I, I don't know where the revenue from the podcast Cup of Jazz comes from, but uh, uh, Eric made a, you know, he's quite the promoter. And he mentioned in his speech by my little hash marks, I think, he mentioned his cup of jazz five times in his 30-minute, yeah. 30, 30 uh, uh, it's cup of justice, but I call it cup of jazz. Well, he, he also brought up that the defense team uh, has their own podcast. Jim Griffin is in a podcast with Sarah Azari, uh, The Presumption. Uh, so he, he, he kind of, and when Eric Bland talked about it, he shot back at him. Well, he did. And, and I mean, those were all diversions. They were absolutely unnecessary in a negotiated plea. And I guess the, that's the real point here. A negotiated plea, everything is carved in stone. The Ten Commandments have been carved in that stone and presented to the judge, and he's going to accept it or reject it. It was pretty clear he was accepting it. So we didn't need to hear from anybody, really, other than the victims to give them that Mm -hmm. time that they needed uh, to the extent that a, a sentencing and and the, the veredicto moment uh, that occurs when, when a guilty verdict occurs or a jury verdict occurs, no matter what it is, that in theory gives the victims finality and some sense of satisfaction. I, I, I said, I think on court TV the other night that, that I've never been in a courtroom where I saw more people wishing for Alec Murdoch to burst into flames uh, because he just did not satisfy anyone with his apologies and his narcissism. Oh, yes. I mean, I, I can't count the many, the, the amount of times he said, I or me. Well, no. unfortunately, a lot of the presentations were uh, all about me. Certainly, Alec Murdoch's was a, a very... Uh, specific goals which were made clear over that 45 minute to an hour and were not satisfying and didn't accomplish a damn thing. Uh, accomplished less, I suspect, than he accomplished in his testimony during the trial. He didn't persuade anybody in the trial and he certainly did not persuade anybody in that courtroom the other day. He still thinks so, he has the magic. He still thinks he has the magic elixir. It's still, he, he thinks that he can still BS his way out of things. Well, I think we know that that magic has gone. <laughs> it has dissipated, but maybe he'll have magic uh, in cell block number whatever, 
when well, he hits the Department of Corrections. It, what I also thought was really uh, odd about his his addressing the victims is he only addressed the victims for, I think, the first little part of it, and then he moved on to apologizing to everybody else in his life, which that wasn't really what we were there for. Why don't Why no, didn't he write them a letter? Well, I, I don't know. I thought the weirdest moment of his presentation was to his thanking the addiction treatment facility for their excellent work with him. Was it, that was really? odd? And, and and like I get it. I've, I saw someone on social media say something about you know it's a good thing to bring awareness to. You know that's obviously a terrible problem in our country. I get that, but it was also it seemed it appeared to be like an infomercial for this treatment oh, he center. He named like these specifically named yeah, the place. Yeah, he, he named the detox and the the second place that he went to. So I it was it was bizarre. Yeah. Well, addiction, I think he brought that up Seton to try and again sell to the public that all this missing money went down his gullet in the form of opioids and I don't think anybody on the planet believes that uh, any human can eat that many pills no. and make that much money disappear. And so uh, that really was kind of ridiculous. But I want to mention that uh, Judge Newman was more restrained than I expected uh, and appeared to me to be almost relieved, as he said, he was closing the page on this, but it was not closing for Murdoch. Um, but I thought, thought the most important thing, observation he made was, I tried to reach you at the end of the murder trial. I, he said something on that order. And he said, but I found you then and today I find you to be empty. Mm. And, and I thought that was an excellent description of Alec Murdoch in that courtroom. He was empty of soul. What did you think about uh, Judge Newman comparing him to a man who shot a uh, police officer and then burned him? He said, this, you are a person who is, who is almost just as bad. Well, I think that was uh, exactly the moment when he described, he said, he referred to that murderer uh, and torturer uh, as a person who was empty really devoid of empathy and, and I call it soul. And that was the analogy that he made. What gotcha. do I think about that? I think, I don't think, I don't know that he was equating the crimes may have been, but, but I thought that he was, uh, you know, uh, explaining this empty, Vessel. empty reference. Yeah. That, um, and that was a way to give it uh, a, a more complete context. So, yeah. That was, uh, you know, I, I expected to hear a bit more from him, and I, but I thought his remarks were appropriate, and, and it, and and finally we got the sentence and, and got to leave. But um, well, it it was uh, quite the the entire process was what I'll call wretched excess, just lots of gilding the lily and giving lawyers primarily the opportunity to say what they've said countless times before. And it was the victim's only chance to speak. And, um, you know, I, I hope it was somewhat satisfying for the victims. Let's talk about one of our sponsors. It is Factor. You can eat stress-free this spring with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. 
Every fresh meal is never frozen and it is chef crafted, dietitian approved, uh, including popular options like Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, and they are ready in just two minutes. Where did you have chili the other day? Delicious. And if you want gourmet meals, you can try meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, truffle butter, broccolini, asparagus. So head to factormeals.com slash impact50 and use code impact 50, 5 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That code's impact50 at factormeals.com slash impact50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Impact 50 at factormeals.com slash impact 50 to get 50% off your first box and 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia. Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. I want to talk about the victims in a, in, in a moment, but I wanted to ask you first, backtrack to what we were talking about, these missing funds, and there were some um, references to narcotics and that sort of thing. I, as just a member of the general public, podcaster, was thinking that we were going to get some more answers about all this missing money. What is your take on that? I, I haven't seen the agreement between the state and Alec Murdoch. Um, typically, his agreement to cooperate with the federal authorities would require a polygraph. I'd be interested in seeing um, the the polygraph chart on if the question is asked, is all the money gone or is it somewhere hidden? That'd be a swell question to ask. You wouldn't ask it exactly like that. But but I mean the I just don't believe that it's possible for that explanation to be accurate, that all of the money went uh, down a drug hole. I just don't believe that. Well, you got and people uh, always so talk I, about the stolen money, which is maybe ten million or more. But people forget that he was also drawing a pretty good salary at the time too. And Fitz yeah. had an article this week that referenced that possibly some of this money they're looking into offshore accounts. Well, that's yeah, that's been rumored forever, right? Yeah, he owns enough property could be buried in a, in one of these you know those non habitable islands that you have around uh, down there. Well, you know, Matt, I've been in, I have communications from a woman uh, in another state, I'll just say, who, who communicates with me, and, and she um, speaks with the dead, and, and she advised me several months ago that, that she was being told by the, by the beyond that the monies were hidden in coffins in a... Uh, cemetery in another state that uh, Alec Murdoch 
financed an interest in this uh, uh, funeral home and cemetery. Mm. Sounds Ozarky. It does. Yeah, um, uh, it does sound Ozarky. And yeah. but you know, stranger things have happened. Sure. Who the hell knows where the money is? I just don't. I believe it's out there somewhere. I just don't know that we will ever find it. Um, let's let's uh, move to uh, while we have you to the jury tampering situation. The charges. Are you representing two, three, two, one jurors? Uh, two and a half jurors. Two I had conversations with, with three, okay. um, uh, but I'm currently representing two of the jurors. The AG's office, when they sent their response to Harpootlian and Griffin, or yeah, to the doctor. Motion for a new trial. Yeah, well, motion for the yeah, new trial. To the, response, response not to, to the court. Yeah to the, yeah, to the court. One of the things in there, and I will not give you the wording exactly, but it, ta- it mentions you and you not uh, allowing your um, clients to be interviewed by SLED, the State Law Enforcement Division, uh, in their early investigation, Quotey Fingers. And I understand you had a response to that, and did you write them a letter? Did you call them? How did that play out? Well, uh, maybe the day following the scream, uh, the Court of Appeals uh, granting of a stay of the appeal um, and remanding the matter back to the trial judge at that time, Cliff Newman, which was a which was granting the relief that uh, the defense uh, uh, requested. Uh, you had to get it out of the appellate status so that there could be a motion for a new trial and. So, uh, in the, the, what that did is once the court of appeals granted that remand to the trial level, the attorney general's office felt that they needed to make a response. Technically they really didn't. Um, and, but the day after that remand occurred, I received, began to receive phone calls from a very nice sled agent who said they'd like to talk with my clients. And I said, you know, I'm happy to make them available at some point. But I'm not sure that I want to do that several times. Uh, I don't want to inconvenience these people. It's it, it's just antithetical to people out there in the public who are called upon to be jurors to know that they're going to have to be involved in this kind of stuff and maybe interviewed multiple times. So let's wait until we get a judge. And based on what I understand is occurring now, I don't believe Judge Newman is going to be the judge. And so I think we need to hold off on an interview, but I'm telling you, SLED agent, they will cooperate and speak with with whoever ultimately is directed to conduct an investigation. And I said then, and several days later, I received a call from Creighton Waters, the chief prosecutor, and I said the same thing to him, that that they were absolutely willing to cooperate in an investigation, they were willing to be interviewed, that I would be present, that I might have some boundaries, uh, but I wanted those conversations recorded um, and memorialized. But I wasn't certain that the attorney general's office, which I feel has a conflict of interest, they have a, a, a guilty verdict to protect, and I'm not sure they can be completely um, objective in an investigation. I'm not sure that SLED, who achieved the, it was the investigating agency in the Murdoch uh, murder case, I'm not certain that they can be objective. 
and, and I explained all that to the sled agent and to Creighton Waters. And then in their response, Matt, which gets back to your question, they said that I was being uncooperative. Right. Well, that was not exactly true. All I said was in the letter, which I'm happy to make available to anybody who would like it. I said, let's wait until the judge is appointed and until the dust settles and we know who the investigating agency is going to be and we know who the supervising prosecuting agency is going to be and let them ask me for the interviews so that I only have to do this one time. I'm not concerned about my time as much as my client's time. They both spent six weeks in a courtroom for 10 bucks a day in the most grueling and visually obscene trial I can imagine. And now they're going to have to be interviewed to determine if a fair trial occurred or if there was improper interference with the jury's um, deliberations that rise to the point of, of materiality that requires a new trial. These are the most important issues we deal with in jury trials. And, and I don't want them to have to be interviewed multiple times. What are your thoughts on this evidentiary hearing that's been requested? Do you think that that's the right time for them to be interviewed? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I think, you know, we don't, we don't have a lot of case law. Uh, there is no statutory process set out in law. But our cases, the few that there are about improper jury interference, dictate that the the judge who is ultimately assigned by the Supreme Court to hear this, and we don't yet have a judge assigned, if the judge follows precedent in these very few cases, one is State v. Green, um, the time-honored method is to bring the entire jury panel and the alternates back, which would include uh, the juror I represent who was excused minutes before the jury was to begin deliberations. And, and they would then be brought into the court one at a time, I suspect, in camera, meaning there won't be any cameras, there won't be any public. And the judge would conduct the inquiry, receiving questions from the lawyers, but the lawyers would not be allowed to interrogate uh, these jurors. And they'll come in one at a time and they'll be asked a series of questions by the judge with, with questions uh, provided by the lawyers that the judge determines are pertinent and, and that the judge is willing to ask. And at the end of the all of these jurors, then I think the judge has to make a determination of, uh, of whether there was interference whether that interference was material in the sense that did it likely impact the jury in a way that interfered with their independent, objective deliberations? And if so, it's pretty clear that the judge has the duty of ordering a new trial. And that will be a big deal. It oh, will yeah. be a big deal for Alec Murdoch because it means that the guilty verdict would evaporate and, and then the attorney general's office would would be challenged to retry the case. Um, and they've said pretty pointedly at the end of this uh, process, at the end of the other day's sentencing hearing, that if somehow this uh, motion for new trial resulted in a new trial, that he would be retried. Well, I'm, I'm not so sure about all that. But it seemed to me that throughout the the proceedings the other day that 
that the prosecution was pretty defensive about this possibility of a new trial and, and equally uh, defensive about the term of years, um, whether it was enough of a sentence. And I think several of the jurors uh, probably requested to do so, endorsed the 27 years as, as sufficient for their in their minds. Mr. Tinsley, in a kind of a backhanded way, Seaton, you may remember, did not uh, endorse the sentence. I think it was his personal opinion, though he didn't specifically say it, but he, he kind of, in a backhanded way, suggested that he didn't believe that was a sufficient sentence for Ellie Murphy. But I thought Crate Waters did a great job saying, look, this is, this is more time than people in the Enron scandal got. Like, this is 27 years, most likely the rest of his life. And that he said, I challenge anybody to find a white collar crime defendant who has gotten more time than Alec Murdoch has. Yeah. Huh. Well, that may be true. I, I haven't searched the annals. I don't know either. But that's <laughs> well, what he said. I know a bunch of, because uh, uh, I've been involved in cases where people get multiple life sentences and as, as Alec Murdoch did in the uh, murder trial and, and uh, you know, get, uh, decades upon decades that far exceed uh, the ability to, of, a per, of a human to serve the sentence. And uh, I recall vividly one of our old judges in the old days when I was a young lawyer who sentenced a fella to uh, 120 years. And the, and the defendant said, well, judge, I, you know, I ain't going to live that long. Uh, I can't do all that time. And the judge said, well, you know, do the best you can. <laughs> and then he walked out. Do the best you uh, can. I, I just want to end with a, a quick, maybe a quick question. I'm not sure. I also know that you had, I believe, you have a motion to redact, right? You had an issue with, in the state's response, I believe not all the names were redacted, all the jurors' names were redacted. That That is correct. And, and one of the things that our courts are pretty uh, strict about is in any filing, um, you you are required to redact, that is to, to black out, I guess is a better way to say it, strike out um, any personally identifiable information, especially things like birth dates, phone numbers, social security numbers. Uh, but Everybody had been careful in this case because Judge Newman directed at the beginning of the trial that there would not be any photographs of the jury members. They would not be identified by anything except juror numbers. Not where they and, worked, nothing like that. Yeah. And, and, and I, I seem to recall that uh, some of our uh, journalists uh, on, within a week of the jury selection were sanctioned by the judge mm -hmm. by excommunicating them from attendance because they they released a, a spreadsheet of where jurors worked i yep. don't think they mentioned their names but but i think they they mentioned the exact names of the places that they worked which was basically outing them sure. uh, for the public's consumption and, and that put pressure that the judge had really intended to avoid so going back to what I in my letter to Mr. Waters saying that I did wanted to accomplish three things. I wanted to explain one that I was not happy that that one of my clients, one of these jurors, were identified by first name in several 
failed redactions. That was corrected the day after my letter was received. So okay. there was never, never, uh, and I filed a motion to that effect with Judge Newman, which was became moot when when it was fixed. The the second thing I wanted to accomplish to, was to to reassure Mr. Waters and Sled that my folks and the court, for that matter, because I copied the judge on the letter, um, that they will cooperate. They will testify under oath. Most of the jurors, well, in fact, none of the jurors that were featured in in the response by Creighton Waters um, gave anything but unsworn statements. Not one juror, as I recall, uh, gave information and made statements that were sworn under oath. The only person who did that uh, was the clerk of court, which I found curious, but but be that as it may, um, the the other thing I wanted to achieve is to make sure that Creighton understood and that the uh, Alan Wilson understand that, that my decision at this point not to make them available to SLED and to the AAG's office is that they may not be involved in this inquiry. And so to avoid doing this multiple times and to avoid the possibility that they might not be wholly objective in their investigation. Let's wait for a judge to tell me who who we need to appear before and we'll be there. And we'll we'll be again willing to raise our hand, swear on a Bible, and tell the same truth that is embodied in the affidavits that were filed, given to the defense and filed as a part of the defense motion for new trial. Oh and I one thing else you wanted to accomplish was they kind of took a jab at your client as being dishonest or something, um, which I seen and I remember when they let her her go, the judge was very complimentary to her. He was, he said she was, she, from all, all things seen, he, she was an exemplary juror. Yeah. Well, he said that she had not done anything wrong and her removal was not because she had done anything wrong. And, And I thought it was interesting. And I pointed that out in my letter as well. Thanks for reminding me that because that really figured prominently in my letter that I thought that, you know, shame on the attorney general for doing exactly what he observed in his own uh, response to the motion where he said that jury duty is such a burden that we should do nothing uh, that that would discourage people to participate as jurors. And I said in the letter, I don't I can't think of any. And I said to him personally, I can't think of anything more discouraging to a juror than to be branded dishonest Mm -hmm. by the attorney general's office. And why in the hell you do that without ever speaking to them? Well, it should not be lost on anyone who is listening to this program. Even in the response filed by the attorney general's office and these unsworn statements of the jurors, at least two of the jurors, uh, indicated that there were communications from court officials. I don't recall that they identified whether it was clerk of court or who, but they were told to observe the demeanor of uh, the defense witnesses. The body language. They said body. And the body language. Body language. And, And, you know, that confirms and corroborates exactly what my client said occurred. Um, and, and these, you know, these, Proceedings will be very interesting, um, but I suspect that the initial process will occur in camera, not not on court TV. 
what is your opinion of uh, these jurors, which is in this, the state's own filing saying observe body language and demeanor? Is that enough uh, to get a new trial? No. Um, but I think that, that you will certainly can anticipate that those jurors who I think were identified by numbers, by jury number, that when the defense uh, and when the judge conducts his or her inquiry, that, that they'll be asking more about that. Right. They can when deeper, did that yeah. occur? Yeah. When did that occur? And was that, you know, if the references, if the statement was made to jurors, and at least two of them uh, in the in the response by the state, and of course the two jurors I represent under oath have said that it went much further than that, but but included watch the body language. But my my clients indicate in their affidavits that those references to watch the body language um, and to be skeptical about. Uh, was uh, were references only to Alec Murdoch and defense witnesses, mm. and mm -hmm. and so if if those references of these two jurors reference uh, mentioned by the attorney general's response were only told to watch the body language of the defense witnesses, that's a tell. That's not good, and that gets you closer to that problem of materiality and improper influence. Uh, Joey, we'll have you back. Um, I will, uh, we'll put your, uh, your letter up on our Facebook page. If that's cool with you. That's good. All right, brother. Thank we'll you. talk soon, Joe. You bet. Bye. See you. Thank you. Bye. Always a pleasure to talk to Joe McCullough. He yep. is just such a character. Interesting guy and smart guy. And, uh, we will have him on again. That is for sure. And I'm sure you will have some reaction and you can send it to us via the Impact of Influence Facebook page and uh, a YouTube channel. Impact of Influence is getting up and running, so check that out. Thank you, Evergreen Podcast Company. We're part of the Evergreen Podcast family now. We thank them. And uh, Seton, we will talk soon, friend. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorized financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now, you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son, who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S. -S.